Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. He sings a love song as we go along, walking in a winter wonderland. In the meadow we can build a snowman. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. And yes, it does feel a little too soon for winter wonderlands, but it is December, the month when shopkeepers around Europe usually make most of their profit for the year. And thanks to President Putin, the Christmas lights that typically lure people into the central shopping districts aren't going to be burning so brightly or as long. We're transporting you to Zurich for that story in a moment. And with a cold front about to hit Europe, I also asked star columnist Javier Blas and economist Maeva Cousin whether European governments have done enough to Putin-proof European energy supplies. If European homes do stay warm through this winter, it turns out they'll partly have China's Covid-0 policies to thank. So, to round off this week's show, we have a quick update from China government reporter Callum Murphy on the protests that broke out earlier this week in more than 20 Chinese cities. But first, that story from Bloomberg economy reporter Bastian Benrath in Zurich. We're selling snowboard and ski apparel. If people don't want to come into town anymore to buy something like this and instead only shop online, that hurts us very, very much. That was Tim Stichel. For 30 years now, his store called Rail Slide has been the go-to place for everything related to skating and snowboarding in Frankfurt, central Germany. It's located very conveniently. Shoppers can find it downtown, right between Frankfurt's Zeil main shopping street and the Roma Square with its famed Christmas market. In the run-up to the holidays, that usually brings a lot of foot traffic into his store, with shoppers looking for snowboards, jackets and gloves to put under the tree. But this year, things are different. Russia invaded Ukraine, which plunged Europe's relations with its main fuel provider into an ice age. Energy prices on the continent are soaring and governments are looking for ways to save natural gas and electricity. In this situation, Christmas lights have become a comparatively easy sacrifice to cut down on energy use. European streets are traditionally decorated with sometimes thousands of twinkling stars and fairy lights for the season. But now, more than a dozen cities like Paris, London, Copenhagen, Zurich and Berlin have cut their lights short, reduced their area or even outright banned them. Frankfurt is among them, cutting large light displays and a number of Christmas trees. For retailers like Tim, this is a cause for concern. He doesn't have an online shop, so he's dependent on people coming into town. Since the city of Frankfurt has also decided not to heat the toilets on the Christmas market this year, another energy-saving measure, he worries that many people are going to stay home and just shop online. This is the most important time of the year, I'll say that. Around Easter we sell a lot and then at Christmas. I don't want to name precise proportions, but Christmas does stand for a very, very large part of our revenue. Worries about the holiday sales are echoed throughout Europe, 
especially as other indicators have already suggested consumers might spend a lot less on Christmas this year. Disposable incomes shrunk almost 5% globally between this summer and last, according to recent figures from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. High energy prices and rising inflation rates are eating away on the money people can spend. For retail experts, this puts a big question mark over the likely success of this year's holiday season. Here's Marcel Stoffel, who leads the Council of Shopping Places in Switzerland. It's hard to make any forecasts, because you always forecast based on past data. But this year we had so many out-of-the-ordinary variables that you basically can't do that. Going by consumer sentiment, it's certainly at an all-time low. You would expect catastrophic holiday sales judging from that. I hope it won't be quite as severe as that. But does cutting back on nighttime lighting even make sense? A closer look at the power consumption of lights suggests that might actually not be the case. An example from Paris. Nighttime lighting of the Eiffel Tower only accounts for 4% of the landmark's electricity use, with heating and powering the commercial areas on the tower's first floor using much more. But that didn't stop Paris mayor Anne Hidalgo from announcing that the tower will switch off its lights an hour early each evening to save energy. Fin de l'illumination de la Tour Eiffel à 23h45, ce qui correspond aussi à la fermeture de la Tour Eiffel, donc à l'heure de fermeture de la Tour Eiffel. Donc on cale... With Christmas lights, the magic word seems to be LED. The company behind the light ensemble on Zurich's pricey Bahnhofstrasse shopping street maintains that the entire installation of more than 23,000 snowflake-themed diodes doesn't use more than 3 kilowatt hours per hour lit. That's about the same a household oven uses per hour if you run it on maximum temperature. Still, the city commission of Zurich decided to half the time the lights are on from about 10 to 5 hours every day this year for the sake of saving energy. So it seems that in many places, cutting the Christmas lights might actually be more about saving face than actually about saving energy. And that also doesn't stop at retailers. Here is Marcel Stoffel again. If somebody now doesn't abstain at all and says, hey, I'm just doing my decorations like every year, and his lights then are big and noticeable, then it may happen that he gets some critical comments like, doesn't he get it? You should really show some effort this year and save energy wherever it's possible. So retailers are indeed torn on whether they should put up Christmas lights. On the one hand, they fear less festive atmosphere might hurt their sales. On the other, however, they dread being chastised by shoppers for not making enough of an effort on saving energy. That means that on Europe's major and minor shopping streets, you'll be seeing shopkeepers who, in addition to the reduced lights outside, also have decided to take down the lights inside their shops. They are hoping that customers give them credit for that. That is, if war and inflation left some interest in shopping and they didn't decide to stay home in the first place. Stoffel is going the other way. We are currently going through such dark times. It wouldn't hurt if we had some Christmas lights. For Bloomberg News, I'm Bastian Benrad. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. So while shopkeepers in Europe grapple with the morality of their Christmas decorations, governments have for months now been trying to ensure the lights and the heating stays on through the winter in homes across the continent. But here we are in December and it seems to have gone fairly well. Today, Bloomberg's in-house energy consultants, BNEF, predicted that a large part of Europe might end the winter with their gas storage still more than half full and with a good shot of completely refilling again before Christmas 2023. That's despite being largely cut off from Russian gas, which we previously had thought would be completely devastating. So so what went right? And what's the long-term impact of this energy crisis going to be in Europe? Well, Bloomberg senior Europe economist Maeva Cousin and Bloomberg columnist and best-selling author Javier Blas are two people with a pretty shrewd take on those questions. Thanks both of you for coming back on on Stephanomics. Um, Maeva, let me let me start with you. I seem to remember. I mean, six months ago, maybe even less, there were some pretty dark forecasts for what would happen to Europe without Russian gas. Now it's December. President Putin has done his worst, but we haven't seen lights going out across Europe. So so what's happened? So just to start, I think some of those forecasts were maybe a bit pessimistic. Since July, we have followed our colleagues at BNF, thinking that actually the winter could be rough, but energy systems would not collapse through the winter. But still, you're right that things have gone better than could have been, probably much better than could have been expected. Uh, for one thing, first, uh, LNG supply has been abundant. Uh, high prices in Europe and lower demand in Asia have really helped keep the supply coming, and that has helped a lot. In addition, we've had some mild weather at the start of the uh, at the start of the autumn, which has delayed the start of the heating season, which has helped. But way beyond this mild weather, we have seen very substantial reductions in demand, way in excess of what people were expecting. I think in the latest outlook, BNF is looking for some 20% reduction in demand relative to normal, something like that. And finally, one last thing is that I think um, European systems have also worked well. I think European energy networks and European solidarity has held out so that we have sent Europe has kept sending gas where it was most needed. And that has been that has been, in my view, quite a quite a big success as well. That's interesting you say about the solidarity, because that had been a question mark about whether, you know, if it came to it and the gas was kind of in the wrong place, like we know Germany's been quite good at, at building up supplies, would countries be willing to uh, send gas to those countries that were more vulnerable? And the, the idea that they have been doing that, I think, is is interesting. And again, not something we would necessarily have expected. And I'm interested what you say about demand, Maver, because we tend to think that you know, people respond to incentives. And a lot of the extremely expensive support for households that governments have given across the continent um, has effectively cushioned them from the massive increase in energy prices. And there's been criticism that that sort of was reducing the incentive for households to reduce their demand because they weren't seeing the full 
price increase. We've seen bigger falls in places where households have seen a sticker price of energy go up. So the first thing is that electricity and gas prices, energy bills are still up 60% on the year in the euro area. So even if maybe not as high as in the UK, it's still a very large increase in gas bills and energy bills. And in addition, I think the message that we needed to save energy uh, for geopolitical reasons has been quite strong everywhere. The combination of geopolitical message and substantial increase in prices has probably been enough to give the right incentives. We've sort of focused on keeping the lights on, but... Uh, obviously the other side of this is the impact on the economy. And what are you looking at in terms of the hit to the economy and the depth of the recession? Is there any good news there? So we had some good news from the from, from the energy side, mostly because if you have at the same time quite a lot of demand reduction, and we've seen quite a substantial decline in gas prices, still a lot higher, but that will help. Overall, we think that uh, European countries will spend about 2.8% of their GDP on imported gas in 2023. That's up from 1.3%. But at some point, when prices were above 200 euro, we thought they would be spending more than nearly 5% of their GDP. At the same time, uh, if anything, financing conditions have tightened much more than we could have anticipated before the start of the ECB's hiking cycle. And as a result, we still expect the euro area will fall into a recession. It will be a mild recession, but we still forecast the euro area to contract by 0.5% in uh, this quarter and 0.4% next quarter. And 2023, probably a stagnation of the economy. So we've got some of the really sort of downside scenarios that we had for the economy that were driven by those really big increases in energy prices that we had at the start of the autumn and the early winter. Um, those, Those sort of disaster scenarios have not come through. But at the same time, globally, the cost of borrowing has gone up for governments, even as the before the central banks really got started on raising official rates. Um, and that in itself is going to slow the economy. So I guess it's a, it's, it's a it's a mixed picture. Javier Blas, I should I should bring you in. Uh, for, given your experience of, of global energy markets, but also how European governments can of, often mess these things up, have they done better at the supply side of this crisis, securing supplies of gas than you might have expected? I think that they have done very well, all considered, but they have got very lucky with China. You could look at the chart of global LNG supplies and look at how much China uh, decreased its buying of LNG over the last 12 months and then compare it to how much the European Union or Europe, including the UK, have increased LNG purchases and it's almost one by one. It's all what China has not bought. It has gone back to Europe. What will have been the situation if uh, China have not been in lockdown and with different COVID zero policy, uh, I think it will have been a lot more complicated for European countries to, to operate. And then I'm very hesitant to say that we have done well or that the worst is over at the beginning of December. We have, depending on the weather, 90 to 120 days of cold weather in front of us. It could be mild, as it has been the case on most of November and most of October, actually. Uh, we have had one of the milder um, uh, pre-winter periods in, in recent history in Western Europe. Or it could be extremely cold, and then we will be in deep trouble. Uh, I, I mean, 
to, to, to think that everything is fine in December uh, when we have three, what I will call, very miserable um, um, months in front of us, I, I think it will, be, it will not be the right thing to do. You've spoken like a Spaniard who lives in London. I may have thought that uh, when I was uh, walking out of my house uh, this afternoon for a sandwich, and I did thought, why I'm living here in the UK. <laughs> so, okay, so that's one thing that could go wrong. Uh, we could get some pretty grim uh, winter. I guess another side of this is just how much it's cost governments to secure this supply. I mean, you make a fascinating point about China. Um, and them having been lucky with that. But there have also been these deals with Qatar and with other places. I mean, have it, has, it, has this been done in any way efficiently or has it just been done in a mad scramble? It has been done in a bit of a mad scramble, but I think that considering the time constraints, considering the difficulties, it has actually gone relatively well in, in Europe. I think that... It has worked well. I think that the European solidarity has worked to a point, although Germany has bought um, LNG uh, and gas supplies at whatever the price was needed to, to make sure that they had enough inventories and pushing up uh, prices for the rest of Europe quite considerably. But just considering how countries have to do this uh, with just basically uh, a Russian gun pointing at, at their heads of the policymakers, I think that it has done... Uh, quite efficiently. Has it been very expensive? Yes, it has been massively expensive. Even at current prices, um, which are much lower than that we saw um, in July, August, uh, we are talking about 130 euros per megawatt hour. That compares to what we used to consider a normal price of about 20 euros per megawatt hour. So I, I think that, yes, we, we managed to buy enough gas. Uh, we got very lucky with China um, being in, in, in a status of permanent lockdown. And then we got very lucky with a very mild start of the of the winter, which has led Europe to start December in a very comfortable position. But let's not forget that now... Every day we are going to be consuming gas from inventories and there is not Russian gas via pipeline to help us rebuild the inventories next spring. And China may be or may not be back and open and consuming LNG. And um, so all of those factors made me uh, a, a bit uncomfortable. And we have seen a couple of days of a bit of windless weather and a bit of colder temperatures um, like the day that we are recording this podcast, which made me prone the thought about going back to Spain for sunshine. And, and, and the electricity system in the UK and France have really been tested and it has been pretty tight. So you wouldn't rule out the chance having uh, still having blackouts or power outages at some point? No, not at all. I think I think that that is still a very reasonable case. I think that that's the reason why governments remain fully prepared for that. Um, France is a country that could suffer trouble in early January, particularly if it gets very cold and more nuclear reactors uh, repairs are delayed, as it has been the case in the last few weeks. So uh, I will not say... Uh, do I think that we are better than where I thought that we would be a couple of months ago? Yes, we are. 
Uh, do I think that we are out of the boots? No. I think that it's too early to, to say, and I, and I think that uh, more things could happen. To think that Vladimir Putin will not try something else, um, it will be uh, naive. He, he may have some other measures uh, to try to put more pressure on Europe uh, this winter. Every time that we thought about Putin will not there to do something else, he will not cut these supplies, he will not cut these other supplies, he will not threaten the pipelines. And he did it. So to think that, you know, he will not try to do something pre-Christmas, I think it will be very naive. What kind of thing has he got up his sleeve still? What, what, what kind of scenarios? Well, he can still cut more. He can cut uh, the, the, the few uh, molecules, BCMs, a billion cubic meters that he's still shipping into Europe, ironically via Ukraine. Um, and he can threaten the physical integrity of pipelines. And I think that to me, the most concerning thing for this winter is the threat of cyber attacks on the electricity grid. I think that that is uh, what every, uh, you told to them privately, uh, that every senior executive of the um, electricity um, industry is worried is cyber attacks this winter. Let's not forget, there was a cyber attack um, not that long ago, the last couple of years, against the biggest uh, refined products pipeline in the United States, which is called Colonial. That pipeline was stopped working. It triggered shortages of gasoline in the eastern coast of the United States. And the, the cyber attack was a commercial hack. It was done by demanding a ransom. They wanted money, but it originated from Russia. And if the goal was to deprive Russia of the benefits of high energy prices, you know, there's been lots of governments who've talked about this and we've talked about price caps at various points. President Biden is still looking for an oil price cap. Is that going to happen? I mean, are we, have we found a way to, to, to punish Russia via that, via, from that direction? Uh, we, we haven't. And the, the main problem is that the price caps are trying to square a circle. I mean, um, you, you cannot reduce the price and artificially dictate what the price is going to be unless European government are willing to, um, uh, for in the case of natural gas, are, are willing to put some compulsory demand response to, to make that happen. I mean, you could not say the price cannot go above that particular price level unless you are willing also to say, well, demand cannot go above a particular level. And that's the reason why the European Commission has proposed this price cap that doesn't cap anything at a very high level with a lot of um, additional um, uh, requirements, in particular the requirement that prices need to be at a very high level for 10 uh, consecutive trading days, something that didn't happen even when prices went through the roof uh, in July and August. Uh, and I think that the, the main reason that they designed it that way is because they knew that they needed to create a cap that will not work. So everyone who wanted a cap could say, oh, we got, we got the cap. That's our political win. And everyone who thinks a cap is a bad idea say, well, they have a cap, but it doesn't work. So that's also a political win for us. Um, and that's the gas cap that, that the European Union is debating at the moment. Finally, if we're sort of stepping back, I noticed that The Economist had on its cover, it had a sort of picture of, the, of a frozen European continent saying how the world is leaving Europe behind. It was suggesting that although there's been some sort of short term good news that we've discussed, the crisis has cost Europe dear and highlighted how the continent is failing to keep up 
with the rest of the world and certainly the US and China. Do you think that's right? That this is a further nail in the coffin for, for Europe's economic model? I mean, Europe is going to have a problem because it's going to face much higher energy prices than other regions of the world uh, for, 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 for longer. I mean, you look at where natural gas is trading right now in the United States, it's something around um, uh, $7 per MBTU. Uh, Europe, on an equivalent basis, is paying something like 40 uh, so if you are the um, CEO of a big chemical plant and you have the choice where you set home uh, in Germany or in Texas, I think that the, the answer is, is very simple. You, you go to Texas. I mean, there is not even a question about it. Uh, I think that some European policymakers are beginning to shift away from the initial thought um, initial worried of high gas prices that was mostly on cost of living and inflation. And now they're beginning to think more about uh, deindustrialization of Europe. And that is something that I have been hearing quite a lot from um, central bankers in particular, that there is the second impact of the the gas crisis, the deindustrialization of Europe, what they are worried now. Um, You know, the the way I put it is uh, 666, and that's not uh, uh, any, any, don't don't look at it in any particular devilish way. But when the the invasion of Ukraine started uh, back in February, when I was talking to executives of big European energy consumers, they were prepared for a six-week crisis. Um, At the end of March, the beginning of April, uh, and when it was very clear that Ukraine was able to defend itself much better than many thought, the, the, the thinking among executives shifted. And they said, OK, well, this is not going to be a six-week crisis. This is going to be a six-month crisis. And six months later, the, the, the thinking is now, well, this may be a six-year crisis uh, because the the global LNG market is going to remain tight somewhere until 2025, 2026, perhaps 2027. And that's why, you know, that's what the six weeks, six months, and now they're thinking about six years, perhaps a bit less than, than six years, but allow me to do the 666. And and I think that that is, a, a, is very problematic because you do not change your uh, business plans for six weeks. I don't think that any executive really make any fundamental business plan change for six months either, other than some adjustments and let's reduce some production here. Let's try to save some money there, you know, delay some investments. But if you think that this is a six year problem uh, for six years, executives do really start to think uh, harder about what they need to do different. Well, great. Leave us on and up. Why don't you, Javier? Thank you uh, so much. Meva Cousin, uh, Javier Blas, thank you. Meva in Zurich and Javier in London. I promise I'll buy your sweater for Christmas, but uh, I appreciate both of you coming on. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.
Well, we just learned that China's troubles exiting COVID had produced unexpected benefits for Europe in its search for extra gas supplies. But we can see it is causing continued confusion and continued challenges uh, for China. And this week, um, anyone listening will have seen you had those uh, very unusual street protests in China. So I just wanted to check back in with Colin Murphy, who we talked to uh, a few months ago, our um, government reporter in Beijing, although currently in Hong Kong. Colin, thank you very much uh, for coming on. I mean, briefly, where do things stand? The nationwide sort of protests that we saw over the weekend, uh, one source putting it at 43 protests in 22 cities, they have definitely quietened down on a Monday night and Tuesday night in places like Beijing and Shanghai. There were very few people out. Right now, it's a bit quiet. Um, Of course, a main factor of that is the sheer number of police that have been on the street and and the stick element of this is is a very very strong and i think it is putting people off and um on wednesday we heard of course about the passing of the former president jiang zemin that brings up immediately the question how this might impact uh, the protest will we see more people uh, taking to the streets whether it be to memorialize the president or to express further their discontent with the current situation so, of course, everyone in Britain anyway likes to see everything through the lens of football. And there was, a, there has been a lot of debate about how much the pictures from the World Cup of fans mingling um, had helped to trigger this. But one of our colleagues was pointing out that they were also all these pictures of the President Xi Jinping with other leaders at the G20 summit recently, also unmasked and, and in confined spaces. So do you think that was a, that was a factor as well? I believe so. I mean, the original spark of this was a fire that took place in the city of Urumqi, which is the uh, capital of the Xinjiang region in the far western part of China. Uh, There, in a high-rise building, uh, about 10 people, according to official statistics, were burned to death in a fire that uh, many people said was preventable. Uh, There was rumors going around that people had been locked in, that fire trucks could not have access to the building. Um, circulation online of videos showing that people were crying inside the building as the flames uh, engulfed that. But of course, all of this was denied by the local government who said, almost in an arrogant way, that the doors were clear and open, but that it was the people who decided not to run and leave the building. And in contrast to that, then you have this celebration going on uh, at the World Cup and, of course, the visiting leaders. So people are watching these images of celebrations taking place at the World Cup. Meanwhile, at home in China, uh, the people are living under very strict conditions and the hardship is quite pronounced. So it really underscores the fact that the world has moved on, but China hasn't. And if we're just looking at it through a sort of economic lens, it was striking. I mean, uh, it was interesting and very unusual to have so many cities involved in this but as we as we know the numbers were quite small i wonder i mean in economic terms the significance of that of the the walkouts and the riots at the in the big in the sort of iphone city in that massive foxconn um complex is that potentially more significant for for the chinese economy i think it's back to the covid issue and how how quickly they will um address that or whether they will uh, take the 
protesters' concerns and try to allay those fears and then sort of relax the COVID regulations. That would be the biggest way to have an impact uh, on the economy. But if they continue to pursue uh, you know, the, the policies as they are, uh, then we will continue to see this economic uh, downturn. And this is particularly a problem for uh, the younger people. So we have uh, a lot of young people making up the protesters and they're having difficulty uh, finding jobs and youth unemployment uh, is almost record high. So I think, you know, this is a, uh, economic issues are definitely underpinning this. Um, but in terms of the numbers and having an impact on the economy per se, I think it's still, as you say, quite small. Uh, the bigger impact will come from whether or not they decide to uh, relax the COVID regulations or not. I mean, there is quite a lot of confusion over where things stand on the on the COVID on the on the exit out of COVID, um, because although we had, as you say, this big show of force in response to these these protests, a lot of uh, police out on the street, we also had messages out of the government that seemed to be adjusting the course and even responding to some of the. Um, opposition to COVID policy. So has there been a softening? So our reporting is pointing to a softening and uh, there have been some isolated reports here and there suggesting that perhaps maybe COVID is not so bad after all. But, you know, these are really very sort of uh, preliminary and uh, not sort of orchestrated in a a centralised way yet. Uh, I think the important thing to uh, remember at all times is that COVID zero basically is Xi Jinping's policy. And anything that sort of moves the dial on that is really going to reflect directly on him. And even the protests so far are a huge embarrassment for him. Just after receiving, you know, the uh, backing of the whole party at his coronation during the Congress. So basically, it's like this is going to be really difficult to shift, even though we we might be seeing some uh, early uh, sort of indications of softening. I think it's going to take time. Colin Murphy, thank you. Well, that's it for Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please rate us wherever you get this podcast and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Yang Yang, Summer Sadi and Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Colin Murphy, Bastian Benrath, Maeva Cousin, Javier Blas, and of course, Tony Bennett. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, A 1,000 global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.